Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gone. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Permanent tax break announced by the Senate for U.S. drinks producers. Fraud alerts in the global drinks business. Illegal winery found in Alabama and counterfeit whiskey in Spain. Two of Champagne's largest co-ops merge. And as ever, our wine of the week. So Katie, let's start with our week in wine. And as ever, all virtual. California's gone into lockdown, so we're stuck at home. But learning lots of things about the world of wine through connecting with people from different countries, which I think is really exciting. And so you helped organize a webinar on New York wine. Yes, the webinar was hosted by Jamie Good in the UK, uh, and he's actually quite an expert on New York wines. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people know that, but he demonstrated uh, quite a bit of knowledge. And we had an interesting panel as well uh, with Nova Kadamatri. Uh, she's a master of wine uh, that works with Robert Mondavi Winery as, as winemaker, uh, but she also has a project uh, in New York State called Trestle 31 in the Finger Lakes. And there was also Ben Riccardi of Osmote and Nathan Kendall of Nathan Kendall Wines. So the webinar was focused on grape varieties of New York State, uh, which is really fascinating because, you know, his, historically, uh, the state has seen many hybrids Uh, just due to weather, you know, they need cold, hardy uh, grape varieties and also that are resistant to disease pressure. Uh, But since the 1950s, um, a lot of vinifera has gone in. The conversation was really interesting to hear, you know, I think as we as, you know, in the trade, um, part of the wine world, we often hear a lot of negative things about hybrids. Um, But it was actually Nova that gave a really good explanation about how, you know, it was the older versions of French American hybrids that were developed back in the mid 1800s to be resistant to phylloxera, powdery mildew. Uh, and not really focused on quality. Whereas nowadays, modern hybrids developed by universities uh, are focused on quality. So she mentioned, you know, Tremonette, uh, Marquette as being much higher quality uh, hybrids, but yet oh, they're still cold hardies and resistant to disease pressures. So something that they can grow there in New York State where it is, you know, an extreme climate. So it, the difficulty here lies in just marketing these wines. You know, not many people, because hybrids have this sort of negative connotation and not many people know about them, how do you market it, especially to an international audience? And, you know, she mentioned uh, blends would be kind of the way forward, uh, which which I tend to agree with. Um, and then also Ben Riccardi shared his uh, De Chinook uh, wine made from Osmote and it, I didn't get to try it myself, but I do want to get a bottle of it. Um, the, all the panelists seem to be really excited about it. So just interesting, you know, learning about uh, the future of hybrids, because I think, you know, especially as we see uh, people opening their minds to this different packaging, different grape varieties, uh, maybe there really, really will be a place for these types of wines on the world stage. I confess that I remain unconvinced. It was interesting to have this uh, discussion because I think a lot of people are trying to um, promote the idea of hybrids uh, being um, used to make high quality wine. I think it's the same in England as well and Canada too, where these extreme climates can be quite difficult to uh, grow grapes in. And so having uh, grape varieties that actually uh, are well adapted to that environment 
could allow local producers to make um, some good wine. So we'll see how that develops in the next 10 years or so. Well, we'll have to get our hands on some more New York wine so we can do some tasting ourselves and, and make some informed decisions. In the meantime, on with the news. The U.S. House of Representatives and Senate this week passed a $900 billion stimulus package, which offers support and relief to businesses across the country, including in the hospitality industry. As part of the package, brewers, distillers and wine producers will receive a permanent excise tax break. This was introduced in 2017 as part of the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act. It's pretty sexy, isn't it? But it was due to expire this month. It will now continue. The inclusion of this break was broadly welcomed by the drinks industry. Other broader provisions include increasing funding for the Paycheck Protection Programme, which helps businesses keep workers on the payroll, as well as extensions to the Employee Retention Tax Credit, the Work Opportunity Tax Credit, and tax deduction for business meals. So this is welcome relief for those in the drinks and hospitality industries. Although it took the government a long time to push this through, the question is, is this a long-term solution when restaurants, bars and tasting rooms are um, all closed? Well, as we know, winter is here and it's going to be a long one for all of those types of businesses that you just mentioned, uh, especially in markets like ours here in California, where doors will remain shut at least through the next couple of weeks uh, during you know, what should be a season where bars and restaurants are thriving. You know, with the holidays, um, I'm just around the corner. This stimulus package, of course, is going to offer a lot of relief. Uh, I myself hope that we can get some more money from that PPP uh, for my business. But besides, um, I think, you know, we really have to focus on hospitality here. Those are the people that are are suffering the most in our industry. And um, it's just too soon to tell what what it's going to look like on the other side uh, of this season. Right. And we're here in California, which is seeing a huge surge in cases, although it's mostly in um, Southern California and Central Valley, rather than here in Northern California, where the situation seems a bit more under control. But everything's closed. Uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor, issued his statewide um, lockdown. So all counties, including Napa and San Mateo County, which we reported last week, were still open for business. They're now all closed. And so it's just it's a question of when in the future things reopen because the situation is in Southern California is quite bad, which may mean further restrictions in January, but we'll see what happens. It's kind of quite frustrating just to be kind of in a, what seems to be a normal situation, but when you just walk the streets here in uh, Petaluma, but obviously on a broader sense is not. Well, I do applaud uh, the restaurants and bars, uh, at least here locally. I mean, that's what we observe since we're not traveling. Uh, But, you know, locally, we've seen restaurants get super innovative with their takeaway and delivery options. Um, It's been really positive to see kind of the sense of community and collaboration that's taken place. Wine producers partnering with different restaurants to create wine and food pairings for takeaway, craft cocktails. Uh, restaurants partnering with other restaurants to keep the menu interesting and dynamic. And we've especially seen this in the lead up to the holidays. Um, Very festive ideas uh, for customers stuck at home and ordering in. The pod has often reported on fraud and counterfeiting in the drinks industry. And two more examples arose this week. 
An illegal winery was uncovered last week in a dry county in Alabama, located in a wastewater treatment plant. Large quantities of alcohol were discovered by the local sheriff, as well as an operational winery. The 62-year-old supervisor of the plant has been arrested and charged with unlawful possession of an illegally manufactured alcoholic beverage and use of an official position for personal gain. Meanwhile, in Spain, a large whiskey counterfeiting ring has been uncovered. The fraud was reported to be worth 800,000 euros and to have possibly cost the brand being counterfeited 4 million euros. The whiskey was produced in Rioja and then labeled and sealed in Ciudad Real. Fake tax stamps, labels, and caps were brought in from Asia for the counterfeit whiskey. 300,000 whiskey bottles have been seized, as well as 11,200 liters of non-bottled whiskey and 36,460 liters of already bottled whiskey. 14 people have been arrested, aged between 37 and 52. Well, wine made in Alabama in a wastewater treatment plant. That sounds tasty, doesn't it, Katie? I wonder what the label looks like. That's my question. There's a lot of design options you could go with there. Well, it's interesting because it's not just um, having this alcohol and this wine. It, as you say, it is actually how do you package uh, the wine in order to sell it. So it's, so it's quite a complex operation, as we can see in Spain, with all the labels and paperwork being imported from China to make the um, brand look real. And so you really do have to go to a lot of work to make these uh, wines and spirits. It's almost like you could just make the, the wine and spirit yourself and make it legal. Well, that wouldn't be half as fun, would it? Well, the situation in Alabama makes me think of prohibition. Maybe that's what it was like back in the day when producers were making wine in their bathtubs. Or in the toilets, in this case, almost literally. News from Champagne, where two of the biggest cooperatives have announced that they are going to merge. The two co-ops are Nicolas Foyat and Castelnau. And stated that the mer- and they stated that the merger would strengthen the cooperative movement in Champagne. Between the two co-ops, they represent six thousand growers across the region, and the two companies stated that growers would be better served and protected by the merger. Castelnau, or to give it its full name, Cooperative Régionale des Vins de Champagne Castelnau, owns nine hundred hectares in one hundred and forty villages, and they have one hundred and eighty pressing stations. Nicolas Foyat is even bigger. It's a union of 82 co-ops owned by 5,000 members, owning 2,100 hectares in 182 villages. 37 of them Premier Cru and Grand Cru, accounting for around 6% of all champagne production. So cooperatives are not particularly sexy. They're not something we really associate with the romance of wine. But as we can see from the figures here, this is a really big deal. It is, but I'm always a bit wary when it when there's too much power consolidated among just a few players. Like for us here in the U.S., uh, that focus has been at the producer and distributor level, uh, with large wine-producing entities gobbling up smaller producers, and then the same with wholesalers, which then makes it difficult for small producers to sell their wines, since you know they're lost in these large portfolios. So what do they do? They sell to larger producer entities who have real negotiating power. 
And we always have to consider both sides of the coin uh, because, you know, it's very advantageous uh, for some of these growers, especially, you know, in this case with champagne, with these cooperatives, uh, I'm sure it will be uh, a big win uh, for a lot of those growers to have these, to have more resources uh, with this uh, bigger co-op. Yes, it seems that the growers are going to be very well represented with these huge entities supporting them. Hopefully there's still an emphasis on quality. I know Nicolas, Nicolas Foyat and Castelnau as well do um, pride themselves on the quality of their wines, although I do admit we tasted Nicolas Foyat recently and weren't particularly impressed. Castelnau, however, I've always liked those champagnes. Yeah, so hopefully they continue to use this kind of grower power to... Um, continue to produce good quality champagne because we do not want the name of champagne to be devalued that we do not and now for a wine of the week which is katie craven sanso 2019 from stellenbosch fantastic we love this wine don't we katie and we're here to support the south african wine industry so good because we reported last week on the pod about the difficulties the South African wine industry is going through right now. A massive surplus of wine, a depressed domestic market, and a pressing need to expand exports. So we're here to do our little bit to support the industry. And this wine comes from Stellenbosch in South Africa. Yes, the producer is called Craven. The grape variety is Sanso. Mick and Janine Craven are an Australian-South African couple who met here in Sonoma, actually, uh, before deciding to settle in South Africa to make wine. And their approach is very much hands-off, with no added yeast, sulfur, or filtration. Sanso is a grape variety that used to be widely planted in South Africa due to its high yields, and it's now making something of a comeback as producers work with old vines, which produce low yields, uh, and as some would say, would produce higher quality. So what are your thoughts on the wine? Um, I really enjoy this wine. I think Sanso from South Africa is a lot of fun. It's lighter-bodied, pale in colour, red fruits, more like a full version of a warmer climate Pinot Noir, but still maintaining its acidity. It's often used for rosé as well, just to give an idea of kind of the lower tannins and high acid. And this wine's a really good example of how older vines produce really concentrated wines. And so it's, it's lighter and paler and nice red fruits, but a lot of concentration to it, nice tannic structure. And so really enjoyed this wine. Yes, well, I tasted this wine blind, and I called it Gamay, uh, though I did think it was a crew, uh, had kind of more that structure uh, that you would expect from a crew Beaujolais versus sort of the more entry level. Um, but yeah, just that really nice kind of more lighter, more pale ruby color, um, but yet had that really nice structure, uh, delicious and an extremely food-friendly wine. I wasn't so upset with my guess. I think it was in general sort of in the same ballpark in terms of style. Um, but again, just a super yummy wine and really good with a wide variety of dishes. And what more flattering comparison that can you have then with a Cru Beaujolais? This is, that's one of our favourite styles of wine, so it's in good company for sure. And um, it's a winning comparison. And what's the price point? Um, it's just over $30, so it is a little bit pricey. And it's difficult to persuade people to spend that much on South African wine um, here in the States, the reputation for more inexpensive wine. But I think when people taste this wine, 
they understand the quality and that there is real substance to it. And I think this is where South Africa has to go and where best producers are trying to go to persuade consumers that there's real quality to South African wine and that it's worth the price. And this definitely is. Well, and there's never a better time, as you said, to support South Africa. So if you're going to spend money on a bottle of wine, um, at least from the both of us, we encourage you to go to South Africa. Cheers to that. So thank you for listening. And this is our final episode for 2020. The shit show. Excuse my language, but it had to be said. Uh, We are very much looking forward to 2021. Uh, We'll be back in your feeds first week of January. We're wishing you all a safe and happy holidays and hope it's filled with lots of good food and lots of good wine. Despite everything, we still had a very um, happy 2020. We've tasted lots of great wines. There's been lots of news to talk about. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast. Uh, But stay safe, enjoy the holidays, and we'll see you in 2021. Cheerio!